trust in money remains the bedrock of stability. The soul of money is trust. I, I think we are not paying sufficient attention to the law of unintended consequences. In the immortal words of the doors, the time to hesitate is through. man i'm excellent thank you that's good i'm good thank you for sharing your scarce time and finite energy on discovering bitcoin it's uh it's a real pleasure to be able to speak with you um you're one of the the more controversial voices so to speak dissenting voices you say things that a lot of other bitcoiners don't want to hear and i kind of appreciate that because um, it gets me out of my own echo chamber. You know, we all come for number go up and that's usually how people first discover Bitcoin. But the deeper down this rabbit hole you get, inevitably, I think if you're working hard enough, you'll get to crypto economics, your book and your thoughts, some of your talks, etc. And um, not that I necessarily wanted to unpack any of that stuff on this pod. It's not necessarily about that. We can pull on threads. But what I'm most curious to know is... How did you discover Bitcoin? Um, Bitcoin specifically, uh, I discovered through a Forbes magazine article by Andy Greenberg, who not too long after that went to write for Wired and then wrote a couple books. And I think he's still at Wired. Um, The article was on the Silk Road. I think it was a cover article. And my wife had brought it home. For some reason, we didn't you know, have a subscription. She never bought it. I don't know why, but she brought it home and slapped it on the coffee table. And uh, I was in the process of winding down my third startup company. And I, I picked it up and read it. And um, um, I got it right away. I, and I, 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 So there's some background that, that would explain that. But I got it right away. I went to the white paper, read it. Um, I started looking at software. Um, and very shortly thereafter, I started started working on it um, and have been ever since. Was it on the cover of the, of the magazine or was it inside? I believe so. I, I think it was a, it was a Silk Road expose. It was before um, you know, Silk Road had been busted. Um, and um, I don't remember what the cover looked like, but I think you know, probably a camel or something. Right. Um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So it was an interesting side note. I, I met, um, uh, I met Andy Greenberg at Cody Wilson's um, student housing unit at UT Austin um, when they were uh, when Cody and Amir Taki were doing the uh, Dark Wallet you know release announcement and Amir invited me down. I didn't know Cody at the time um, and Peter Todd, you know uh, and. Um, uh, Patrick Straitman, Phantom Circuit, not, not as visible as he used to be, but he, I think at the time he had about 5% of the hash power on the network. And he was uh, with Amir. Uh, he was the, he, he wrote the first line of code for the Bitcoin, which is the project I work on now. Amir brought him in to do that. Um, so he was there. Um, 
Andy Greenberg was there uh, writing. So this is a small apartment. You're going to say all these people were in like the living room of a student housing unit. Um, And Andy was there working on a, on a story about Cody and Amir. And there were some college kids, maybe two or three of them that were doing like a video documentary on Cody that were all, that were in the unit. Um, And it was just such an interesting um, group. And, you know, I don't, I don't mind describing this, this meeting because we all ended up on a, pod on a podcast that you know afternoon or the next day day in uh at the uh i don't know it's called libertarian bookstore or something in austin it's underneath like a bank of america um oh, and wow. so we all we all chimed in on this on this podcast and and i didn't know andy greenberg at the time but uh he had just written a book um and i think i read it yeah i read it um i had already read it by by that time um but we were set, sitting there in the bookstore waiting for um you know turn to go and have a have a chat on this podcast and uh and he you know he introduced himself and i'm like oh shit yeah i think i read your book and he says yeah it's right over there on the shelf and so um that was a nice chance meeting to kind of close the loop on the guy whose story originally got me into uh, bitcoin uh, but my my understanding really came from um experiences i had years prior um in the early mid 90s uh, I was still in the Navy at the time, um, so I had I had I had gone. I went to Rensselaer Polytech, uh, got a computer science degree. Uh, I like programming, but I went to work at IBM for an internship and realized that that was going to be a pretty boring career path. So joined the Navy. A couple of years later, I was out of college and I went flying, and I did that for ten years. Um, but while I was in, I, I eventually got sucked into programming and uh, again, and and um, I by the time the internet was becoming a thing and people were getting email and all that, I, I started to get really into it. And I kept, I wrote software for the Navy I, um, for, to help to make my work easier and um, eventually shareware, giving it away, made some big deals online that it, you know, just came in on their own and um, uh, eventually ended up leaving the Navy, starting a company. But so during this whole period, I was reading like applied cryptography um, various, you know, kind of books about programming and getting, getting really into it. And so, um, left the Navy at the end of 98 and started the company after, I don't know, by 2006, I sold the company to Microsoft and moved out to Seattle. And then I, we split that company into another company, which, um, when I left Microsoft, I joined, uh, remotely. And then we sold that to Veritas Capital and it's still out there. Um, mm-hmm. it's getting bigger and bigger. It keeps, it got sold again and again. Um, snowball, you know, but I don't have any involvement in it anymore. Um, and then I did a third startup, which I shut down and then I found Bitcoin, uh, during, during that period, I had heard about Bitcoin. Um, so I found that that was probably early 2014, late 2013, I forget. Um, I had heard about it, but I kind of ignored it because of the experience I had in the nineties. I, um, so I started, um, it was in around 91 that I kind of decided I was a libertarian. And uh, that combined with my programming and technical background, maybe my military background, I don't know, uh, led me to have an interest in PGP, Phil Zimmerman's trials. And uh, um, um, I I read applied cryptography and I got, you know, I didn't have that kind of experience in college. It wasn't a thing back then. Not not for an undergrad anyway. so you and, were you were aware of things like 
you know, David, uh, David Chalm's Blind Signatures and... Um, yeah, that's where I'm going know, with it. I, yeah, I, right. I went from PGP to um, DigiCash. Mm-hmm. And when I was reading the patents, um, I don't even know how I found this stuff. Maybe like reading Reason Magazine or Liberty or, you know, do some kind of American libertarian type things. They probably would mention them. I don't remember how I got it. I became aware of them. The internet wasn't what it is now, right? There was no, no way. There were no social networks, right? Or chat. There were, there was, you know, IRC chat. Maybe, and then there was, there was uh, news groups, NNTP, things like that. And you kind of troll around in there and try to find stuff. And that's where Satoshi originally published uh, his work was on IRC. I mean, not IRC, um, NNTP, I think, the alt um, cryptography um, group. So, you know, the newsreader application and, you know, mail Eudora or something. That was early, early stuff. But it's, I had done this stuff in college, too. Back in, you know, the, in the 80s, um, the Internet existed. It's just nobody used it. And I, and I used this type of stuff at IBM as well. So when I was at IBM, I, um, you, this is back in 86, I had, I had um, run into, on their mail system um, called, it was Profs. It wasn't really the Internet. You know, it was my, IBM's global thing. A guy named Eric Bosco, he had my name and um, <laughs> working, for the, yeah, working for the company in, in Amsterdam. I have, it's a Dutch name. So, so I pinged him. I, I don't think I got a response. I can't remember. Um, but then I'm reading, uh, I'm reading the uh, DigiCash um, patents or, or Chomes patents. And, and I find a guy named Eric Bosco on the patent. And <laughs> also, you know, the, the company was settled, uh, incorporated in Amsterdam. <laughs> so, is it the same guy? I don't know. I was very curious. So I contacted them. And again, there's this early internet days, like people had email, but it wasn't extremely common. And, you know, I'm not surprised I didn't get a response back. And that was that, right. Um, I just sent an email to the company. <laughs> and, um, and so I, I had another chance encounter while I was in the Navy. I was with a guy whose sister was an investment banker. He was another pilot in my squadron. His sister was an investment banker in Manhattan. And uh, had some experience with Jones cash raises, <laughs> and I got right. I, had, I heard some interesting stories about that, which I, I, I shouldn't you know go any further on. But but I had you know I had some understanding of what was going on, what the problems were, the technology. You know, not, I wouldn't call it deep, but I I had enough background that I was, okay, that makes sense, and this isn't this isn't you know working because it's got this fatal flaw, which is. Right. Not just technical centralization, but you know, David Chome at the center of the thing, who who really wasn't going to let it go. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, years go by, you know. So I, so I so I'm kind of ignoring Bitcoin while it's starting up, you know, <laughs> unfortunately, because I'm like, you know, this it just these things came and went over over the years in between, right? Mm-hmm. They just kind of stories about a new digital cash intent. And I'd be like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I went through that phase. Right. Um, and so, so I read this road thing, not because, you know, not because of digital cash or Bitcoin because of uh, the, 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 uh, the marketplace idea. And it was related to what I was doing on my third startup, which was a kind of an electronic marketplace. Uh-huh. So that's why I found it interesting. And when I saw the Bitcoin stuff in it, I was like, that's, you know, that's interesting. And then, so as soon, that's why as soon as I read the paper, I had a pretty, decent understanding uh, of, of what was going on and what problem there was and what problem was being solved. So I got excited about it. I got really excited about it. Um, then I, you know, I, I, at the time I had been doing a lot of development again um, 
I had, I had, you know, lots of languages, but I went and I looked. So I was current. Like I've been coding a lot for years, but about three years after I left Microsoft, I didn't code two years at Microsoft. And then for like eight years before that, I coded in C++ mostly. Right. And so uh, I went and looked at the code and I couldn't make heads or tails of it. It was just nonsense to me. And I was like, what is going on? Right. This is the Bitcoin code. What kind of five-year-old wrote this code? And <laughs> sorry, sorry, Satoshi. <laughs> but um, so I, I, I was looking around for something else. I'm like, oh, what, you know, there's got to be something better than this. Right. And, and so I, it was kind of frustrating, but I found, I found the Bitcoin and it made a lot more sense to me. It's still, you know, still, it's kind of inherently confusing, but there's, but, but it, you know, it made more, a lot more sense to me. Um, I found some other stuff too, uh, that was not C++. And then as I got to understand the nature of the problem, I really felt that if I was going to invest time in this, it had to be C++. It's not going to be any other language. Right. Uh, just because of the nature of the problem. And, uh, you know, we can go into that later, but I, so I, so I basically looked at LeBitcoin. I said, well, who is this guy running this thing? And I did, I looked up some, pulled up some YouTube videos on with the mirror in them. <laughs> I was like, Oh, he's a, you know, he's a real character. I like this guy. Um, and so this is before, this is like leading up to that um, meeting in the, in the apartment sort of thing. No, this yeah. is way before. This yeah. Way you hadn't before. met me yet. This is a couple of years before that. So this is um, when I, you know, this was right after I read the Forbes article. This mm -hmm. only took like a week for me to go through all this stuff. And so <laughs> I sent Amir a note. I'm like, I'm like, I want to meet if I'm gonna invest years, I know I know how long I know how long this kind of stuff takes. It's, I'm almost, you know, I'm like in nine years in now. I know how long this takes to do to do things that are significant. And I'm like, if I'm gonna invest the time in this, I'm gonna know I'm gonna know who I'm dealing with, right? He started this thing and and uh, so I sent him a note, no response. I mean, I don't know response. I'm like, gosh, shit, you know. And so I, I'm, I'm, I'm just trolling through the old uh, mailing list for LeBitcoin, and I see a post from a fraternity brother of mine, from my, my the guy I know from college, right? right? And I'm like, what? Who the hell's, you know, what, what the hell's he doing on here? And he was like, he had been a grad student. He was a few years older than me. He was a, he was a PhD computer science student, at, you know, when I knew him um, in college, and I was an undergrad. But he happened to be living in Seattle. Where I was, you know, so, I, so I'm like, dude, so I, we go and have lunch. And I talk to him. I say, can you can you get me an intro with Amir? It's like, how do you how do you even know about this stuff? He's like, oh, Amir used a bunch of my software. He, he used some software that that he had had written some Python, Python twister or something. He had, he had, this friend of mine had written it and Amir had used it before Bitcoin even existed. So they knew each other before Bitcoin. It was something to do with his online gambling system. And so, sure enough, yeah, he got me an intro with Mir. Mir responded and he said, yeah, come on out. So he was living in Califu, which was this kind of squatter. You can't call it squatter, but somebody had, Eric Durant, I think is the guy's name, had, had bought this space or rented this space for a bunch of kind of squatter, like people live and do stuff. Okay. It was like a big industrial concrete thing up in north of Barcelona, like an hour on the train. Like not a so commune, but something akin to. Not, not, a, not a commune, but something akin to. Yeah, it had this kind of very communy, squattery type feel to it, but it was paid for space, you okay. know. Yeah. Um, and people were doing their own thing. You know, they were they, they were raising geese and making a heating system and you know 
making water flow from a tank on the roof so they'd have running water and things like that. It was not, it was, it was like, it felt like a burned out concrete building from like leftover from World War II or something like yeah, that. Right. It had a roof on most parts of it, you know? <laughs> but it was, it was pretty cool. It was fun. And, and uh, Muir had like a, uh, like a Franklin stove, like an iron stove, you, you know, throw wood in mm-hmm. and keep you warm. And it was kind of cold there at the time. And so anyway, I got there, we had, um, he, he was, he was like asleep all day. He woke up at night and we, we had this great talk. And then, then I, you know, I went to sleep. I slept in his cot in his room. And then the next day I got up, we talked again, then I left. But basically we kind of came to a mutual understanding. Like um, I just wanted to know who he was. And, and um, he was doing, you know, he had like a little uh, hacker thing going on there, which was kind of neat. Um, and um, there was another guy there um, that had done a lot of work with him, Pablo. Um, and he was kind of a, I think an old school kind of, um, um, Catalonian, you know, anarchist right. type. Um, so, uh, I came back and I, I started working on it and there was another guy that was, we had a dependency on, we have a dependency on zero MQ, which is a um, messaging stack. Um, and, uh, I, I ended up going out to, um, Brussels to meet, um, Peter Hinchens, who has since passed, um, on, very unfortunately, um, but uh, he's a great guy. But uh, Peter Hinchens um, is kind of a legend in, in, in kind of open source circles. And uh, I was I was like, man, what a great guy. We, I, you know, I spent a couple of days there at his place, and and uh, he took me around Brussels, and we drank good beer, and you know, just just had fun. And uh, I, thought, I thought maybe every every couple of years or so, I'd come out and see this guy, and then a couple, you know, like a year or two later, he passed away from. Mm-hmm lung cancer came out of remission, which I didn't even know about. Uh, um, so you know, those were the kind of uh, um, two, two people whose software that I was going to be working with most significantly. And so that's how that, that got started. Um, and then it was a couple of maybe a year or two years before the uh, dark wallet thing happened. Um, so I had a, I'd actually had a couple of, more meetings with Amir before that one in Toronto and somewhere else. Um, so we, we keep up, we still keep up. Um, but the interesting thing about, you know, close the loop on David Chom, um, there was a web free conference that was going on every year, probably still going on. Um, and it was pretty big and they, they kept, they kept inviting me to do this thing and um, uh, I think they wanted Amir, but Amir wasn't doing it, and I wasn't doing it. I think, but like on the third time, I think I had met some of the the, the people who were running the conference in Japan, and I'm not sure if that was it, but something like that, where I, I kind of <laughs> had a personal connection and like, come on, can you do this? I'm like, all right, you know, because they, they wanted a Bitcoin person, and right. um, it was a bigger thing. It was web privacy. But uh, so I did it, you know, I was there to channel Amir essentially because he wasn't doing it. And it was in Berlin and in Berlin. Um, so this, there was a lot of speakers at this thing. I don't know. Like, it was three days of all day long, you know, 100 speakers or something. Um, but I got invited to go to a barbecue um, in, in, a, in a fancy flat in downtown Berlin of one of the organizers of the conference. And it was a short list of names and I didn't, I don't really know any of the names on the list. So I wasn't going to go, but I, I ended up going, um, cause again, cause I knew, I knew one of the organizers and they apparently, they hadn't put the names of the famous people on the list cause they didn't want a bunch of people, random people to show up. <laughs> so there was about, ended up being about 20 people there. And while I was there, the, the, 
the first, you know, so, so after a bit, there were maybe five or 10 people milling around and then Richard Stallman walks in and, um, so I thought that, that was interesting. I'm like, is that Richard Stallman? I, you know, usually I'm the oldest guy at these Bitcoin things, but this wasn't really a Bitcoin thing, right? Richard Stallman's like, an, he's a generation beyond me, right? right. Um, decade. So um, that was interesting. I'm like, oh, I'm not the oldest guy in the room anymore. And then, and then David Chom walks in. <laughs> so Richard Stallman and David Chom are like, you know, titans in this industry, um, and uh, if you can call it that. And they know each other, but they're not like chummy, you know? <laughs> um, and so it was very, interesting. there was a picnic table in the yard on the lawn on the street, you know, out in Berlin with a little a fence around it. So we're kind of in this little fenced in like corral on the, on the street in Reading town. And uh, we're having this barbecue and they're sitting at a picnic table and David Cho and, and Richard Stallman are directly across from each other at this picnic table, having a chat. And, you know, I'm sitting there and um, with a few other people, we're just kind of paying attention. It was really interesting. But when I, uh, before that happened, I had a, I had a, like a five minute conversation with David um, where I just told him the story I told you about how like, you know, I, Hey, I, I sent you guys an email and you know, you never responded and I told him about the guy with my name and he remembered it. He's like, he's like, yeah, that guy was a college hire and we just stuck him on one, you know, on the patents. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I don't want to, I don't want to downplay the guy's involvement. Maybe he was significant, but it, but it sounded like, oh yeah, he was a college hire and he was on the team. So he was on the patents. And, uh, it's like the and best said, grip on a movie or something. What's that? It's like the best grip or something on a movie set, you know, like a, like a runner or something. It was it was a small group. Yeah. I've seen a, there's a photo of the original team in Amsterdam, and and he's in that photo. Right. The, this this guy with my name, right? <laughs> and so, uh, one time I tweet somebody tweeted out that photo. It was the first time I'd seen it. I'm like, and it had all the names of all the people on it. And I'm like, yeah, there I am. That's <laughs> 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 me. See, <laughs> I was on the original Chomian Cash team. Um, the only, the, the guy's name is, his first name is spelled with a K, but that's the only difference. Um, the only difference. So I had happened, I had looked him up a long time ago to find out, you know, what, what the deal was. And it turned out he got it. He came to the U S and he got a job. I think he was working this just like on his LinkedIn public LinkedIn profile. He was, he was working at um, Nintendo or something, making games. And so David said, I wonder what he's doing. I said, oh, I think he's in San Francisco working in Nintendo games. And he said, oh, that's, that's interesting. Yeah. So that's my story about how I was involved in um, Chomian Cash in the mid-90s. That's crazy. <laughs> uh, what I find really interesting, which you mentioned at the top, was um, the, the angle with which you discovered Bitcoin. So you were primed more than most people, shall we say. Like there's, you know, we're talking in the period that you're talking in the late 80s, to the late 90s, early 2000s, leading up to, say, 2008. Um, but there's a small cohort of people that would have been able to look at the white paper and understand it immediately. Yeah. But because you'd had all of these other touch points with regards to some sort of digital cash, whether it's BitGold or DigiCash or any of these sorts of things, uh, eCash, you, know, you, you start to become a little fatigued uh, and dismissive of them. And then, so these are effectively like pre, prehistoric touch points to Bitcoin because Bitcoin obviously doesn't exist at this point. Um, 
And then even once Bitcoin was up and running, you still weren't too um, impressed by it, shall we say, or maybe you hadn't bothered to take the time. I just hadn't paid it. I was busy. Yeah. I had, you know, I had kids, a business, um, startup running myself. And, and, uh, and, and I was like, you know, I just, you, you push a lot of stuff to the side at that point. And, and so, you know, what I would see is like uh, something in the news, you know, yeah. something on a, something, I, you know, I don't know what, Social networks, I guess, maybe here and there, people talking about. It. I don't know. You just hear these things. Right? The word Bitcoin was familiar to me. I right. Um, but I just really didn't pay any attention to it, and it wouldn't. It wasn't until that Silk Road article uh, that I re- read because it just happened to be sitting on my desk that I did. And you're right. Like if if that chance encounter with the concept of Bitcoin had happened, you know, five years earlier, right at the beginning, I would have got it. Oh, without a doubt. I guess what I'm saying is even you needed to frame up an angle, have a touch point that was relevant to you in that moment, in that time, just like anybody else. And um, I find that really cool that the universality of these various touch points on the road to discovering Bitcoin, you know, you hear it there, you hear it here, you hear it wherever, and eventually it resonates at a particular frequency that that you tune into and yours just happened to be coinciding with the startup that you were beginning with respect to some sort of marketplace and how Bitcoin with the Silk Road, this marketplace, and all of a sudden the frequency was right for you to tune into it. I just find that fascinating that even, you know, um, like a, like a, a cypherpunk from the early days still needed just like anybody else, various touch points. The advantage that you had was that you could then go to the white paper, read it and be like, shit, that probably will work. Whereas for someone like me, I'm a dumbass. So I'd read, like, I'd hear about Bitcoin number go up tech, which is like the vast majority of folk on this, on this pod. And then we do our due diligence, I suppose. I mean, most people do. I did. I read the right paper and had no clue what it was talking about other than Okay, that's I've sort of ticked that box. I've read the read the white paper and I've got it saved on my computer and uh, and I can refer back to it as required. But mm-hmm. as far as a technical understanding, no way, no chance. Um, so I needed touch points, and a lot of other people needed touch points, and even you needed touch points to ultimately discover Bitcoin, which I think is really cool. You know. Yeah, the most confusing thing technically for me, respect to Bitcoin, initially was script. You know, you take a quick run through the thing. You read the white paper. There's not a lot of talk about script in the white paper. Um, but I'm like, what's the point of this? <laughs> like, like I'm, I'm just thinking of money, right? Like, you know, why is there a programming language inside this thing? <laughs> right? It was super, super confusing for a little, little bit till I, till I finally got my head around. Okay, I see what we're doing. Right? Uh-huh. We're, um, we're conditionally committing these, these transfers and. Um, and making it more more than just money, mm-hmm. um, or I mean, it's still just money, but um, controlling how it's transferred. So um, yeah, but the, the the concept of you know how um, of how we're solving this this kind of central actor problem was um, was evident pretty pretty quickly as, as I thought about it. It just seemed very elegant. And um, hmm. and I, I remember I got, I have a guy that I work, he still works with me on the Bitcoin. He worked with me on my 
in my third startup, and he, and he he was a PhD college hire type out of Microsoft, and got put on my team, and um, the smartest people I know, and uh, um, I, you know, I was shutting down the company that we were both working for, and I'm like, so we we go out. I, I was like, hey, I this was before the thing was even fully shut down. I'm like. No, I, actually, I think it was the first day. It was like, okay, so like, okay, I wrote the last check. It's closed. We're done. Hey, let's go have a coffee. I want to talk to you about this Bitcoin thing. <laughs> and so we did. And um, and I said, what do you think? You want to work on it? He said, sure. And we've been working on it ever since. Cool. Um, so uh, that's been nice. Uh, you know, I've, I've been able to... to um, raise money for people to work on the Bitcoin. Um, I got, he's, he's currently working under a grant from a third party um, uh, right now, which is really nice. And uh, I've got a couple others as well that contribute, uh, have, have been full-time, aren't right now. But um, yeah, I kind of, I, I worked for a year with him on uh, a project to make hardware wallet. This was before Trezor was even released. Um, but um, I decided uh, I didn't want to do that. Like what, what I wanted to build was too expensive for the market to want to pay for. Um, and I, 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 it was interesting. I had another fraternity brother <laughs> uh, living in Seattle who was my generation and a year older, I think. And he, he was an electrical engineer and he'd started a company making, uh, cust- you know, kind of custom electronics for a different people. And mm-hmm. um, so he, his company had made uh, like the Nike fuel band and, you know, these um, they'd done everything from like DNA sequencing to uh, payment system. They did, they did the Disney, the Disney um, wristband things that everybody uses and all the doors. And all that. So they, they, they made really high end, uh, high quality stuff. And they you know, a couple hundred people downtown Seattle. So I spent the year, you know, once a week going down to Seattle and, and, and working through engineering designs with them and eventually got a cosmetic prototype made in South Korea and, uh, got an engineering diagram made. Um, you know, I wouldn't say it, I don't know what they call it. Not a, not a blueprint, but, but basically parts, parts list and, uh, fully priced out and everything. And, and then, and then priced it out on, you know, manufacturing it, if you do small batch, it's U.S. If you do like a little larger, it's Mexico. If you do really big, it's China. At least it was at the time. And this is like this is like eight years ago. So that's changed. <laughs> but um, I just looked at it like the volume I'd have to buy to make this. I'd have to commit to to make this affordable. Right. It's not, nobody's going to buy it. And so uh, it was. It was a good chunk of money, and it was years worth of work. But I, I literally. I had a cosmetic prototype. I have a thing I can touch and I literally put it on the shelf. <laughs> so I'm going to, I'm going to sh- put this idea on the shelf for quite literally and literally, and I'm going to just keep working on the Bitcoin, which was the software stack behind what we were building. Mm-hmm. And, um, I'm still doing that. So, uh, I helped Amir get, I think the second release out. Um, by the time we did the third release, he, I think that was right. He never, he never quite finished it. And he, he ended up going to, um, Rojava, um, Kurd, you know, part of Kurdistan, I guess, um, to fight against ISIS. Uh, actually that was not his plan. His, his plan was to, to talk them, the new state into using Bitcoin as their money. Hmm. Um, 
it's a fascinating story. Um, he didn't tell me he was going, but I knew where he was going just based on the fact that he said he was going to be gone for a while. And, and yeah, he popped up a while later. So he spent a year, he spent a year with a gun in his hand fighting uh, until he learned the language. So he speaks Damn. Kurdish now. Um, and, uh, he speaks, you know, he speaks Esperanto. The guy's good with languages. Um, so, so he learned the language. And by the time he learned the language, he was able to, to actually get what he wanted in the end. But when he first showed up, they just put a gun in his hand and showed up in the dark of night on a boat up a river blindfolded, you know, like a bag on his head or something. Uh-huh. And, uh, they stuck him in a, they stuck him on the front lines, which is about a mile away from the ISIS positions. And, um, yeah, he just did some, you know, some kind of shelled out building. And he said in the next building from his, where his squad leader was, which was a woman, got shelled and she was killed. Um, but he mm-hmm. said he never actually saw the whites of anybody's eyes, right? And they were just shooting like, like at a mile apart, um, just keeping them at bay. Yeah. And so um, I didn't hear from him for a few months. And then he was able to get a, you know, get a machine. And, and, and I, we had enough shared secrets that I was able to kind of, authenticate him <laughs> and uh um and uh I, so i ended up finishing the version three myself and that that's actually the version that's still out there there has not been a new release of bitcoin um i mean we i did some maintenance releases but just been no new release of bitcoin um for over five years well i got i got a couple of questions in and around that but at the at the risk of derailing the overall general format of the of the pod i'm yeah. I want to sort of just veer it back a little bit. And um, I think we already answered the, the second question, which is, you know, why do you think you are open and able to discovering Bitcoin? I think we covered that pretty well. Mm-hmm. But uh, how has discovering Bitcoin changed you? It hasn't. <laughs> I don't think it has. Yeah. Love it. It, it doesn't. I'm... I'm Maybe I'm, I'm older than most people that you encounter uh, in this space, but um, I, yeah, philosophically, politically, uh, financially, um, I'm was pretty well established before I found Bitcoin. Mm-hmm. I mean, I I was retired. I mean, I, I left that. I yeah, I've been I've been working full time on Bitcoin, you know, pretty much since since I left my third startup. And my third startup was, you know, something I did on my own after I left Microsoft. But you know, if you were to pick a date, and I, I didn't, I never earned a paycheck in my third startup. I put money in, I didn't take any out, right? right? Nothing. So I was retired when I did that. I've never taken a nickel for doing anything in Bitcoin. Um, um, I've probably broken even on my books um, in terms of the publishing cost and and whatnot, and I give it away free. I speak for free. I consult for free, even on, you know, on the Bitcoin. I've paid other people a pretty substantial amount to work on the Bitcoin so that they have, the, they could do that. Um, so for me, this is, you know, this is either a long-term kind of stealthy corporate strategy, or this is just retirement. When I, how we want to look at it. Um, I do have a company, uh, I just, you know, just for long-term capital gains purposes, if there was ever any reason to sell anything, I have mm-hmm. it, but, but it doesn't do, the company doesn't do anything. Um, so basically what I'm saying is I, re, I, I retired after I left Microsoft. Uh, when I, I, it took me two years to get fully paid and, and, and then I left. Um, the, the, the next company I sold within a year and I was, um, I, I was, I guess technically I'd have to say I was, I was earning money working for my second startup before we sold them. So that was with a year later. So like 2010, I was done. Um, and so for 12 
years solid, I've been I've been retired, and that's about how old Bitcoin is, right? So um, it didn't, you know, I I had already decided how I, you know, I my economic kind of theory was fairly well solidified. There was actually some growth in the in those like 2012, 13, um, where I, I finally did some more work on, on understanding uh, economic theory. I, I finally read Man, Economy, and State, which was kind of the capstone of that mm-hmm. long effort. Um, but that didn't, have any, that didn't have anything to do with Bitcoin. I wasn't involved in Bitcoin at that point. I also did some campaigning for Ron Paul, who had been the libertarian presidential candidate back in the 80s. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, be, you know, I was I got politically involved with the RLC, which was the, the Republican faction that was trying to elect a libertarian, and I uh, bailed out of that after a while. And I'm really not a fan anymore. Um, but um, that that's kind of after that, and then Rothbard, I decided I became an anarchist and stuff. So that was all pretty well solidified before I even found Bitcoin. And then um, I, I continued, I you know, I, but. So that's why, you know, when I found it and I started to understand it, I think I came at it from a different perspective than a lot of people. A lot of people just don't know where they stand in terms of more, you know, we talked about moral principles before, like, okay, that's your, essentially your politics, right? How do you, where do you stand morally? Where do you stand? uh, How do you understand economy and finance and and money? Um, I mean, I've been living off my investments, you know, uh, pre-Bitcoin for a long time. Um, I think people assume that if you're, you know, if kind of retired or wealthy, you've, you've, you you know, your money all, and you work in Bitcoin, it all came from Bitcoin. That's not me. Uh, you know, I, I've probably spent more money on Bitcoin than I made on Bitcoin. Um, uh, you know, spent more money developing it. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, eventually I got some Bitcoin so that I would, I would have some. I mean, I'm, I work in it. I should have some, right? Right. Um, so as far as how it changed me, uh, I, I, I honestly, I'm, I mean, I always enjoyed travel. I've been to 90 countries. Bitcoin gave me an opportunity to travel. Well, my son really drove that more than anything. He was fascinated with travel. He wanted to do all this planning. And so it really, I, I had military travel experience. I had business travel experience. I had family travel experience. And then Bitcoin comes along. It gives me a great excuse to travel. It gives me a great excuse to do public speaking eventually, uh, which I had experience with and it wasn't really new to me. Um, very comfortable with. Um, and... You know, meet the people in meeting Bitcoin are great people. I meet, you know, <laughs> that uh, that are in it for the right reasons. I try to. I've always tried to avoid like the big shitcoiny conferences. I, I I never did a conference in the United States. I've done a lot of conferences, but I never did one in the United States until I did. I just did this tiny one so I could go skiing in Jackson Hole. I got invited to it. <laughs> I spoke there <laughs> and I went skiing. But it's not really. It's the first time in the United States, right? And I'm and I'm going to do Miami. Because my daughter, my daughter's going to school down there in Tampa. So I, I got invited to that. I did it remotely during the COVID. And I was like, okay, I'll do that. That'll be good. But I, but these aren't the kind of things I like. I like the small, kind of very community, developer-focused, uh, economics-focused kind of things, which is kind of what I did in Hanoi. I, I think they're, the economics around Bitcoin is largely shit. And, and it's, it's so bad that, you know, that, that's what the, mo- the bulk of my book was made up by just dispelling these bogus ideas that people would put forth, even supposed economists, right? And it, you know, people kept making PDF books out of it. And I finally said, okay, you know, somebody came along, actually James Chang came along, he did the illustrations and he, he did that. He, he made a pretty good one. But the problem was I was changing it so rapidly. I think he got frustrated and, and, 
and never, <laughs> he couldn't get it finished. But he stuck with the illustrations and <laughs> they made it into the final book. So, um, you know, I, the, I'm just talking about like the community aspect that, that I got out of it, right? mm -hmm. the people I met and all this stuff. I, I, I can't say that it changed me, but I, but I, I got to have experiences that I, I wasn't having otherwise, right? It's a, it's a very different type of world than corporates, you know, IT software. Um, I mean, I had a lot of experience with venture types. I had pitched and sold the venture multiple times, raised money. I had issued, um, I had issued debt and convertible notes and uh, raised money. And I've invested uh, as an angel investor, as a member of funds. I've vetted companies for venture capital types um, multiple times. So I, like that whole world of, of tech finance and stuff, I, I, I get it. Um, hmm. It's not what I consider that much fun. Um, and so if anything, like it didn't change me, but it, it, it gave me an opportunity to be around the things that I enjoy more. Uh, people that um, I enjoy being around, different types of people, different places, you know, around the world, different types of people and um, um, people with a similar kind of core mindset around individual liberty um, and a kind of adverse to statism. Mm. <laughs> um, so that, you know, that was, it was, but to me, I look at, it's more like an opportunity. I don't think it really changed, you know, me. Um, yeah, that's, that's a very unique um, POV on this particular pod because of, well, the fact that majority of people that I've spoken to on this podcast, uh, you know, they come from they come to Bitcoin from a, a completely different set of circumstances. They're not they're not doing computer science. I mean, we had Nifty on, and uh, she's an engineer, software engineer down in down in Texas. Um, but majority of people, actually, you know, what's really interesting? Nifty came to Bitcoin through through work. She wasn't attracted to Bitcoin from the number go up either. So there's a little bit of correlation there between like the the software engineer and and you know like the coder developer of yourself, where you you both have not found Bitcoin from the from the perspective of number go up and all the all the other things that most people I dare say that get into Bitcoin have found. Uh, you're coming at it from like a very practical, really um, kind of perspective. No, I mean I look I look at Bitcoin's a money. Right. And yeah. it's a money that's necessary and it has an incredible value proposition for a lot of people. Um, and it's successful. It's already done what it set out to do. Um, you know, the fact that people are waiting for it to do something, you know, <laughs> poking a stick at this thing and you know, do something. It's already doing it. It does it. And that was that was, you know, I, I did. I did learn some important things from Amir that uh, took me a while to realize that I had learned. Uh, but um, that was something he told me in the meeting in Califu. He's like, I, you know. I don't understand how, why, why people look at it this way. Um, and that, you know, that was good insight because it, it opened my mind to, to thinking of it uh, in a different way um, or, or maybe more critical of some of the things that were, you know, had become very popular um, in it. And so I, 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 I never, my motivation for working Bitcoin was never to, to join a casino, right? I, I, I um, and from, you know, I had enough experience 
with economics and my own and finance and investing to understand, you know, where where value where where growth comes from. Mm-hmm. Right? And it doesn't come from doing nothing. <laughs> it doesn't come from sitting on your ass. <laughs> I made a trade. Okay, now I'm rich. You're just gonna keep getting richer forever. And if everybody did the same thing, they'd all be rich. Nobody would make anything. In reality, what would happen is we'd all starve to death. Well, that's exactly right. It's production before consumption. Right. Well, yeah, I mean, but if there's no production, whether it comes first or last, it doesn't really matter. If there's no production, then everybody dies. And um, the only thing that feels, you know, the production production of goods that require, that people require to live are um, are consequence of uh, labor, time, and capital. Somebody has to direct the labor, uh, I mean, somebody has to direct the capital, right? It has, it has to occur over time. Nothing happens without time. There has to be capital and somebody has to direct that capital over time. And that, you know, that, that's when I'm, I'm very specific when I refer to labor, that's what I mean, who's directing the capital. So, okay, if nobody puts their capital into producing new things, what happens? Well, what happens is prices rise. There's no new things. People demand rice. People are starving. They'll pay anything, right? And eventually, people start making things because, man, there's a great op- there's growing opportunity cost, and people start making things. And that production of things, you know, uh, lessens that, um, satisfies that demand and brings prices down, and you kind of reach this equilibrium. It's the production of things that creates things, and that's what growth is. So, you know, the idea of a magic internet money that just makes everybody rich just because they have it, you know, perpetually is is kind of on the surface, very suspect, right? And for good reason, because it doesn't make any sense. Um, and so if you if you understand the, the economic theory, you would understand that we're talking about speculation, not investment. Investment is lending people money or capital. And one thing that people immediately misunderstand or mis- have a misapprehension about is that that, that equity and debt investments are both lending. You're giving someone their, your capital to produce something and give you the returns. That return is called interest, whether it's in you know, lending lending or equity lending. Those are regulatory distinctions. And Rothbard will tell you that. It's right in his book. <laughs> Very explicit. So, okay, you either lend your capital or you sit on your capital. If you don't lend it, you don't get those returns. So where does growth come from? It doesn't come from anywhere. If you sit on gold for a thousand years, it's still, you know, <laughs> it's still the same gold as it was. Same gold. As long as you, you know, and, and so, so people people observe monetization in Bitcoin and they go, ah, you know, it's magic internet money. It just makes you rich because you have it. <laughs> um, and I'm like, that's not how money works. And they're like, well, not it's not a money. It's something new. I'm like, no, it's just it's a money. <laughs> it's, it meets every possible definition of money. And um, so I I always looked at it as yeah, it, the number's going to go up as long as it's being monetized. Um, but it's not rational to think it's perpetual. And it bothered me for a long time that I couldn't, I couldn't quite explain that to people. And so I kept at it. I kept at it. I was, there was a few things in Bitcoin that I thought about pretty much every day for years until I finally figured out what was going on. And when, I, when they hit me, I was like, that's fucking stupid. It took me so long. I feel like an idiot. Um, but one of them was, what's that? That's usually how it goes. <laughs> yeah. I think one of them was walking down the street and it just hit me. Um, and that was the censorship resistance principle, which Satoshi never articulated, nor had anybody else up to that point. Um, I, some people had hinted at it in, in, in 
in years gone by, I've, I've seen things people wrote. And I'm like, yeah, they were very close. Why didn't they just, you know, push it over the edge? But uh, then there, then there's um, the stability property, which is what, what ultimately makes it stabilize. Why doesn't the number just keep going up forever? And those are, um, those are controversial. Mm-hmm. Uh, they were very controversial at the time, uh, both of them. And now they're, I consider them, I consider it settled. Those are things, well, number, the number go up one is not settled, but the, but the censorship resistance property, now I see people that previously fought with me on this who've embraced it. Um, because the answer from core devs and everybody with any kind of respectability in Bitcoin up to the point where I proposed that, that censorship resistance was a consequence of fees, fee differential, um, the, the answer, because there was no answer prior to that, Satoshi suggested that people would just kind of donate to the cause of mining to push out the censor, um, you know, economically irrational proposal, uh, obviously. And uh, that that was so that didn't hold up very well among people. Uh, but what they said, we'll just keep hard forking our way away from the censor. Now we saw people actually try to do that in other coins and realize that it's exactly what I said it would be, which is it's it's a foot gun um, for a number of reasons, which, you know, given the nature of your podcast, I won't go into, but, um, so the, you know, the, the, I had these predispositions, these things that to me were already settled. I understood certain ideas, certain things about economics. So when, when Bitcoin was introduced to me, it didn't define my theory of economics, right? right. Bitcoin, when, when I saw Bitcoin, I took what I, you know, like economics doesn't change because Bitcoin comes along. No. Right? It, it's either true or it isn't. And when something new comes along, it's like I tried to. I made this comment to somebody the other day uh, on on Twitter. If something new comes along. Uh, what, what example did I use? Um, um, when 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 some you know when when the airplane is invented and people, people the things are flying in the air. Right? Does physics change? <laughs> right? <laughs> all of a sudden there's new physics. No, no. We we have to figure out what we were missing. What didn't what didn't what did we not properly explain with these, this system that, that works, right? Mm-hmm. And that was Bitcoin. Bitcoin is confusing people. It's different, right? It flies and nothing's ever flown before except birds. And we never figured out how they did it either. And so, okay, well, let's explain it using what we know to be true. Or we're going to toss out what we know to be true just for this one case, right? Which is nonsense. So that's what I did. I set up, this is why it was bothering me. I didn't have clear explanations for a couple of things in Bitcoin that people were really religious about. And they didn't have explanations for either. They were just religious about them. And so over time, I just, you know, I, I, because I came to it with this different perspective, I came to different conclusions. And one, you know, one ex- great example is the idea of supply. It is very hard to find somebody in the Bitcoin community who understands what the word supply means. There, there are some people. There, there are people I talk with quite a bit and have had, you know, pretty rigorous debates with, but who actually do understand it. And supply is not a quantity. It's not a noun in economics. It's a verb. Like demand, right? Right. Demand is it's something you do as a person. And if you think about supply and demand, right? This is the, supply and demand was a terminology that Marshall came up with. He wrote essentially textbook for economics. And um, he took ex- ideas that Menger had created, that it existed in, you know, the Austrian school for, since then. And he reorganized them a little bit. And he came up with like, you know, like the cross-cutting, you know, the scissors, the cross-cutting scissors, he called it, or the graph, right? Mm-hmm. The classic graph. He did that. That was not Menger. 
right? He didn't, Marshall didn't invent anything new. He just reorganized these concepts a little bit. And one of the things he did was he took demand and demand, right? Two people demanding each other's stuff, verbs, and he turned them into supply and demand. Well, supply and demand are also verbs, but in English, supply is also a noun, right? What is the supply, right? Instead of I'm going to supply something. So when we're talking about price, right? Marshall's supply and demand. We're talking about demand and demand. There is another word, which means how much of it is there, but that's not what supply and demand, that's not what determines price. So you can use whatever you, word you want, but what determines price, according to economic theory, is two people's demands. So, And find me somebody in Bitcoin that understands that. This is funny because um, clearly I'm a psychopath. Last night I couldn't get to sleep, so I put on Man, Economy, and State, the Mises Reader, and listened to that oh, while I was trying to fall asleep. And it wasn't because I wanted to fall asleep. It was actually because, look, if I'm going to just hang around with my brain all wide and whatnot, I might as well throw on some Rothbard, right? Because <laughs> that's what normal people do. Yeah. But uh, it happened to uh, just be, I think, the intro. And I remember something about um, Marshallian price theory. Yeah. And there was a mention, I think it, it's, this, was, this was in the intro of the book, but there was a mention somewhere with regards to Rothbard um, uh, dismi- not, not, was it dismissing this or um, I was trying to think. It was something to do in the long run, entrepreneur, what was it? Something to do with entrepreneurial errors, uh, absent of profits and losses, I think. Oh, man, yeah, I'm not making any sense. But, book, but I, I do know that Rothbard, um, in, in some ways, is very critical of Marshall and what he did. Right. Uh, yeah, that's, I think, well, that's effectively my point is like, you know, I know that you've read Man, Economy, and State. That's the capstone for you. And, and so in that book, I'm pretty sure he just like attacks that Marshallian price theory of the scissors. Yeah, I mean, it, Marshall kind of leads into this mathematically oriented kind of economics, which becomes macroeconomics. And, right. And there's no, you know, it's not a mathematical discipline. Uh, you know, not, not Austrian economics. Austrian economics is a, is a reasoned discipline, an axiomatic system, like geometry. Um, and... Um, if you look at like the graphs that Rothbard does, and then and if you re- ever Menger and uh, Mises Rothbard, um, and in most depth, and you know he has these like graphs that are that are steps, right? You know I I prefer this over that. That's a that's a binary choice. It's not a continuous function. I prefer this over that, and this over that, and this over that. It describes it as like a ladder, right? Um, and two peoples have these, and when you when you intersect them, they're not like these nice smooth curves. They're, they're these jagged steps, right? <laughs> right? And and you get to this point where they intersect, and you turn that into calculus, and then you apply it to the society as a whole, and you start doing stuff, and you're fooling yourself. And that's a very strongly made point by Rothbard in Man, Economy, and State is that this is bogus, right? You can't make that leap that you just made. What we know are these things, and there's nothing that connects these things to the math that you're doing. It's a huge leap of assumption, leap of faith that's happening there. And he, he strongly denigrates the entire schools, you know, all, all schools of, of economics that do that. So if you're an Austrian, and, and so, I mean, you can't necessarily say that Rothbard is the defining Austrian. But what Rothbard did, he was, I, I believe the history of it was he was hired by the Mises Institute to update Mises. Because his, you know, um, uh, human action is very anachronistic. 
and he rambles on about things that really aren't provable economic things, things that other people pick up later, which is unfortunate. Like, oh yeah, you know, fiat money leads to bad art. Okay. <laughs> it's just ludicrous from an economics perspective, right? So um, the Rothbard does a really good, so what happens is he, he's, 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 he's there to revise this work, not to come up with new ideas, right? And not to toss out bad ideas, but he does both. He, 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 he's, you know, I read Rothbard first and then went back and read, um, read Mises and I was like, Jesus, he's like, this is just hard to read. Um, aside from the anachronism, it's just painful to like see that the obvious errors he's making that Rothbard didn't make. Uh -huh. um, so I think Rothbard did a great service to provide a much cleaner, um, less error prone and al economic analysis. Um, and he added some new things that, um, um, that weren't really there before. Mm -hmm. I mean, they weren't like truly new discoveries, but new discussion that, that was not covered in economic theory, uh, rigorously, like a monopoly theory. Was was he gets a lot of credit for his his treatment of monopolies, and he he has a whole section on intellectual property, uh, which falls under monopoly theory, uh, patents being monopolies and copyrights being contracts, at least from a you know conceptual standpoint. People get confused between conceptual and statutory, but um, so Rand State is a is a is a is a great work. There are I. I I wouldn't say it's perfect, but it's a lot better than Mises. And and he was just there to update Mises and the Mises Institute published it, whatever you know. And he and he and he he wrote two books. It was man it's man economy, the state, and power and market. And power and market, it was all one book initially, and he couldn't get it published. Power and market was too anarchistic. Hmm. Publisher wouldn't publish it. So he split it off, never published it. Later, it got published as a separate book, and then and then it got put together. And now you can get Man, Economy, State with Power Market as one book. Um, but because of that, there's a there's a heavy amount of redundancy between the two between the two books because they had to be published separately, right? But for the and, scarcity of time, I wish that I could, uh, you know, dedicate, um, gosh, just a week even just to sort of sit down and and peel through the pages to uh, to really get a sense. But I have to. Um, I have to to um, suffice at the moment with with just chucking it on as a podcast in the in the late in the middle of the night. Um, I'm, I'm the next couple of questions I've decided are kind of irrelevant, and I know that I, I want to sort of uh, be true to the format of the podcast, but because I have you and and I'm mindful of the time. Uh, one of the more interesting concepts that you lay out in crypto economics um, is the idea of uh, black and white markets. And there's a chapter in the book, The Other Means Principle. And I'd listened to a couple of episodes. I think there was an episode with you and Stefan Lavera, episode 72 for anyone that's listening that wants to go back and have a listen. Because this podcast obviously doesn't dive deep into those things. However, I want to take advantage of your presence here and just kind of get you to unpack maybe just this chapter because it struck me last night when I was reading it that you talk about these different phases, the honeymoon phase, black market phase, uh, competition and then surrender. And um, I sort of can see there's a couple of things occurring right now within the space and as much as I want this podcast to be timeless, I, I, I see them sort of moving at least in and out of a couple of phases here, and I wanted to get your take on it. Um, so, 
I'm talking with reference to something like uh, Operation Choke Point and or 2.0. That, that's that's the word that they're using at the moment to describe it. They're shutting down banks' access to you know Bitcoin and so on and so forth. And and you're quite explicit with your um, explanation of of a black and white market and 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 how they would emerge. Um, so if we could just sort of unpack maybe this other means principle and talk about where what you're seeing. Are you seeing these sort of phase shifts between honeymoon and black market at the minute where or, or black and white market where these on and off ramps are getting choked out, shut down, whatever? Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, there's a you – know, there's a – you know, these are, these are well-defined concepts but not – you know, discrete phases that humanity goes through. Um, these are, you know, in other words, it's not all one, then all the other. It, it has to transition over time. It can go back and forth. I even point that out. You know, these things can cycle back and forth. Um, but but it's a it's a good concept, a good way to conceptualize what's happening, right? Clearly in the beginning, nobody gave a shit. Nobody knew what it was. There were no restrictions whatsoever. We do whatever we want. Um, it's only when things become more popular that they become, you know, problematic from the perspective of the state. Only, only popular things get banned. That's another important concept. <laughs> People think it becomes too popular. They can't ban it. I'm like, it's kind of the opposite. They did try to ban so, the Beatles and Elvis. So yeah. And, and gold. Gold. And prostitution and gambling and alcohol and drugs and books you know, pretty much everything else. Right. So, um, work, I mean, you know, you consider, you can consider tax on labor, a banning of you know, labor to a certain extent. It's Technically. Being and, um, so they ban, they ban, literally ban labor too. There's, there's, you know, uh, minimum wage laws. If you're not worth a certain amount, you can't work. If you're not worth you know, a certain age, you can't work, et cetera. If you don't get a certain license, you can't work. So, so banning, you know, one of the most popular things for people to do is work and make money. Mm-hmm. Um, so anyway, uh, this, this process of, uh, you know, it, clearly we're going to be in a, in a phase before that where it's not popular. So there's no interest whatsoever. And then you get to the point where, you know, if it gets popular enough, it starts having an impact. Um, it, in other words, its value proposition starts being realized. You have to, you have to understand that the, if, the, if the value proposition is anything it, it it is it is helping you avoid the costs of state money and what are those costs signage which is a tax on having the money and transparency which is a it's tax on using the money because because now you're um, you're revealing everything you do when you use the electronic money of the state so um, you're now subject to their other taxes and that's essentially what any money laundering means right money laundering money laundering means transacting privately um, and so the two taxes are your signage and, 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 um, and, and transparency and the value proposition of Bitcoin is that it helps people avoid them if they're willing to take the risk of doing it illegally, right? Presumably, right? If, if, if it's not illegal ever, right? For anyone to do this, then presumably the ability of the state to tax the signage will go away because people won't want to pay more, <laughs> for their money, to use their money, to have their money. And presumably everybody likes, you know, for the most part, transacting privately. And so all transactions move into a private system, whether it's Bitcoin or something else, right? If it's not illegal to do that, 
Presumably it would happen. Um, so experience has shown that it gets to a certain point when it starts having an impact. Um, state takes, takes action, like Liberty Reserve, for example. So you can't prove that they will act, right? Not economically, but you can say that um, there may be a point at which it takes, you know, there's enough of a opportunity cost in allowing this thing to function that you might want to act. And, and if you're going to act as the state, what, what do you have at your disposal? You have the law, mm -hmm. right? You pass a law. And it's not hard to pass a law to control people using Bitcoin. And anybody that wants, that, that sees themselves as a law-abiding citizen in that jurisdiction is no longer doing what they didn't want them to do. There's no censorship resistance. And so it's not like it has to happen all the same time, all over the world, all 100% completely banned, right? What we're seeing is these things, slow. that's not how law and states work. Um, you know, I mean, take a look at how the drug war became an all-out war on people, right? It, it was incremental. It was slow. It took a lot of different steps, right? But it got there, and it, you know, it was never total either. But obviously, the cost of operating uh, openly in most countries in the world became very high for you know heroin dealers. <laughs> so, um, and it was you know previously it had been like uh, you know I mean the Germans sold crystal meth over the counter, you know, like like chewing gum. So that was a pretty significant change, right? Um, and and pretty much the same thing you know, around the world. So so the, these these changes are not like immediate; they're not complete. But there is a distinction between something being legal and something not being legal in some jurisdiction. And that distinction is, if it's not legal, nobody in the white market does it. Otherwise, you're black market, right? And so my point is simply that. If they care, they can do it. It's trivial to do. Just pass a law. One argument is if it's popular, they can't do it. And that's not observed. <laughs> that's not, that was my Kern's argument. Can't ban popular things. Point is, we can't prove they can't, right? They, arbitrarily things get banned. And if they want to do it, they can do it. And what you can also do is you can look at history and say, well, if, if we wanted these values, if, if the people of a society, the United States, for example, Australia, if they wanted what we call sound money, they could just vote for it. If it was that popular, they would just vote for it and they would have it because they still have functioning democracies for the most part, right? And if they don't believe they do, well, then your argument about popularity goes out the window. So popularity is the status quo. That's what we have now without Bitcoin. We have popularity money. And popularity money has these taxes. And so people want something else. So it's not about democracy. It's not about popularity. It's about individuals opting out when it's illegal. And the only way you can do that is become black market. That's the only way you have the defense against the state is by choosing to operate um, in contrary to the law. That's, that's, otherwise, there's no censorship resistance whatsoever. So that's another, that's another thing people don't like to hear. Right? There is no value proposition in Bitcoin unless you're willing to be black market. And anybody building white market stuff is is wasting their time ultimately when it comes to the value proposition for Bitcoin. Uh, it doesn't mean they won't make money. Uh, it means they're not contributing to um, to the reason Bitcoin exists, its value proposition. Um, and so you know you have this back and forth. A minute go, go on forever, and then you know you get to the point where the states like you know passing the law wasn't enough. We need to enforce it. <laughs> okay. So they, you know, start breaking down doors and trying to stab everybody, can't, but it's not working. And this is, and we can observe this in, in everything else that's black market. Um, take drug war, for example, gambling, whatever. 
So what do they move to next? Well, Bitcoin is unique in a couple of ways. And one of those unique ways is that it can be attacked from one point on the earth. So pool your capital, you know, states, one state, multiple states, doesn't matter. But, you know, go to Oklahoma somewhere and set up a giant ass mine and, you know, or steal everybody else's mines, steal all their mining equipment. Right. This is, you know, this stuff's now banned. We're going to like they did with alcohol. All these, take all the barrels and seize them and smash them and just make a big public show of it mm-hmm. because this stuff wastes energy or whatever excuse you want to come up with, right? Right, right. And mine, mine the crap out of it um, so that you can censor it. Um, and once you can censor it, you can prevent people from transacting, which means their money is no longer useful. And uh, you can then permit them to use their money if they pay a tax, which means now you've recreated, uh, it's not signer, it's just demurrage, but it's the same, the same result of anybody who has the money, right? Demurrage money, you pay, a, you pay a fee to use or have the money. Um, and and they can set that fee to whatever they want. So basically, it is possible for the state, you know, theoretically, there's nothing stopping the state from executing a 51% attack that that uh, censors all transactions and implements effectively signage, nullifying the value proposition. Basically, it becomes a monopoly money. And and here's here's what bothers me so much about how people treat state money and Bitcoin and the distinctions is that what makes state money problematic from this value proposition standpoint is that it's monopoly money, not that it's fiat. <laughs> the, the fact that they have a monopoly on the production allows them to charge a monopoly price, which is higher than the, you know, the produ- much higher than the production cost. And it's as high as the market's willing to bear. Um, and the production cost is you know, pennies on the dollar, literally like five cents on the dollar. 10, 15 cents on $100 to make that money. That monopoly protection, current um, any counterfeiting laws, is not unique to the dollar. If you could somehow control all gold mining, you would do the same thing. And the Cantillon effect, which people refer to incorrectly a lot, which Mises refers to incorrectly, is about state-controlled mining of gold. It has no applicability in the, in the free market. He was, Cantillon was referring to the king's mines that he observed um, this effect on. And so Bitcoin under 51% attack is now monopoly money, right? It's now, and now subject to signage, demurrage and, um, and censorship. So it's not the technology that makes it this way. It's the people and their willingness to use the technology to remain private, which they can do with gold, for example, or silver, but they can't do it electronically. And Satoshi hit the nail right on the head when he titled the thing, you know, peer-to-peer electronic cash. Peer-to-peer implying there's no central control. It's electronic, which is distinguishing, distinguishes it from gold, which has no central control. And it's cash. It's not credit. Mm-hmm. There's electronic credit. There's no electronic cash. Cash means it settles itself. Yep. It doesn't, not represented by anything else that it will settle in. You don't you know, get your gold in the end. So... That that's this is why I like these these ideas that I that I bring to Bitcoin that I I understood before Bitcoin that I understood better once I applied them to Bitcoin, you know just basic what I call rational economic concepts because Austrian is a little too overloaded for me but basic rational economics um, says that it's 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 the monopoly control it's not mm. the fixed supply it's not the um, cryptography it's it's not any of that stuff. It's the fact that this tool gives us the ability to, to, to try to avoid that monopoly control, but it's also subject to a monopoly control that nothing else is. That at one place on the earth, imagine if there's only one gold mine on the earth and everybody used gold for money. 
That's kind of like Bitcoin. There's only one, you know, imagine one mine with, you know, 90% of the hash power, 56% of the hash power, whatever. That's the only mine that matters. Um, and is, so that's the, that's the hazard with Bitcoin. Is, is that, the is the 51% attack, is that, so, because I, I often thought about this, they talk about costs and it becomes cost prohibitive. Um, I think the higher the, the hash rate goes up. And that's, that's, that's not, well, that's what, that's okay, my point. Sorry, so like, cause well, you, as a state, you could just, you know, print, print X Nilo, you could fund it all as much as you like, or you could, as you pointed out, steal it. You just th- seize it, take possession well, of it and, and then consolidate it and, and enact a 51% attack. I, I, as I started to say, I think the premise is wrong. It's not, it's not like this is rising cost to a 51% attack. Right. That, that conflates two different attacks, right? And and this is why I'm very I'm actually careful in the book not to use the term 51% attack for a censorship scenario. Right. So when I use the word attack, again, I'm going I'm using my moral principle. The more the moral principle is that if you're gonna use the word attack, you're implying a theft, a moral crime, right? So a 51% attack is somebody, it's like a finny attack, right? It's just different percentage. Um, you know, there's everything from a Finney, Finney attack up to a 51% attack. There's other types of attacks in between, but it has to do with um, <coughs> um, what, you know, kind of what hash rate you need to achieve the attack. Um, uh, and, and, the, and the idea of an attack is I, I bought something with Bitcoin. I got, I got myself a new, you know, a new Lambo with my Bitcoin. And then I reverse the transaction. I keep the Bitcoin. Right? How do I do that? I do that with a 51% attack. That's an attack to steal money. So a 51% um, attack, when we're talking about censorship, I call, um, so first of all, every miner censors, if you define censoring loosely, which means they, and I do in my book, it's like, it just means um, subjective confirmation. Like I subjectively decide what I don't blindly look at these things. I make a decision. I'm choosing this one over that one. And there's no objective way to do it. Not really. Right. Like it, it take, would take days to computationally determine what was the most financially beneficial set of transactions to confirm. And it's always changing. So it's basically impossible because you need to you need to be able to do it quickly if you're going to be profitable at all. So you're guessing and that guessing is subjective. You knapsack solver, whatever you want to use. But Okay, so there's kind of this arbitrary selection. If you randomized it, which is not really what happens, but you know, you have you have a sort of, a sort of random. But the reality is that miners can confirm whatever the hell they want. It's not an attack. It's not an attack for they, they have to kind of arbitrarily choose in the first place. So if a miner decides I'm only taking transactions that start with you know three, okay. <laughs> that's fine. That'll work out, right? It's and I'm not taking any transactions where I don't know the person transacting. That's also fine. That's censorship. Miner can do that. Other people can take them, no problem, right? So it works out. It even works out when a miner has ninety percent of the hash power, right? They just as long as long as somebody's mining the other transactions, they eventually get confirmed. And that miner, um, as long as they're not, as long as they're building on other miners' blocks, no problem. So the difference is, so between a fifty-one percent attack, which is this costly reversal, which is what you're referring to, I, I believe, right? This cost of reversal. A 51% like censorship scenario is really what I call majority enforcement, right? I'm enforcing censorship. So I can individually censor, no big deal. I build on other people's blocks with 90% or I have 40%. I don't build on anybody's blocks, but I'm, it doesn't matter. And those, the only time it matters is when I have more than half the hash rate 
hash power, and I don't build on other people's blocks. If I, if I decide to do that, I'm enforcing my censorship. And that's what I call it, censorship enforcement, not a 51% attack. Because you're not stealing anything from anybody. You, you have, you're well within your rights to, 50, to, to, to majority enforce whatever you want in Bitcoin. And guess what we call it? Guess what we, guess what we do every time we change, or we change the rule set in Bitcoin? We call it a soft fork. And why do we have miners enforce it? Because otherwise it doesn't work. <laughs> because otherwise we split the chain. And minor enforcement of a soft fork is exactly the same as a censorship enforcement. It is censorship enforcement. We're, we're banning certain types of transactions for whatever reason. And we need majority hash power to do that so that it will take, so it will take effect, right? So that will, we will have a single chain eventually. If only 55% of them do it, we're going to have two chains for a while, which is what happened with BIP16. The activation threshold was too low. Some people will say it was user enforced. It wasn't. It was minor enforced. And minor activated, minor enforced, but it was too low, so they had to defer it, and it went, you know, and eventually we got there. But that's why the threshold was much higher later. So, okay, we have this idea of minor um, censoring, which is how we enforce softworks. The question is, is this something that the community wants to be censored, which is a software, right? Or they don't want to be censored, which is, who knows, like some list of, some blacklist, you know, from the from the Federal Reserve or something, right? So they're, they're the same, so they're not, they're not miners stealing, right? Nobody has an obligation to mine on anybody's block. Nobody has a mining obligation to mine your transactions. This is an economic system and it's not immoral to do those things. It'd be immoral to steal, like intentionally go and steal your money back after trading, um, unless you've kind of made some contractual obligation to say like, you know, even if I steal my money back, it's still mine, it's okay. If I can get there, okay, good, that's cool. So, so the, uh, the, the idea in Bitcoin is that people have to, it ha they have to value it high enough so that they can make sure their transactions are getting confirmed. And the way they do that is they pay fees. <laughs> and, they, they, and if you don't get confirmed because you're being censored, your fees rise. You're, when your fees rise, that, is, that creates an opportunity cost for other people to come in and mine and, and put, possibly overpower the censor. That was a realization I had walking down the street that led me to you know, say, okay, there is an economically rational explanation for how Bitcoin is censorship-resistant. And by the way, it doesn't apply at all to proof-of-stake coins, and it doesn't apply at all to the block reward. I'm sorry, to the block subsidy. It only applies to fees. And it only, it only is measured by the fee difference, not the absolute amount of fees, but the difference between the black market fee rate and you know the banned transaction fee rate and the non-banned transaction fee rate. So once that rises to you know above one rises above the other, then you've got a cost to maintain your attack because you're not taking those fees and hash power is presumably coming in to take it. So you've got to subsidize your attack. That costs taxes. You can do that. Um, so who wins? Who knows? That's that's where we end up in stage four, <laughs> right? Somebody surrenders because. Um, it, it can get costly if you're losing for any any material period of time. Um, and so you cycle back and forth. And I think that, that you know, we've seen that in altcoins. Um, and I think, you know, it's it's it would be very naive to assume that that can't happen in Bitcoin. And that's one of the problems I have with the cheerleaders in Bitcoin is they just assume it can't happen. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's nonsense. Of course it can happen. Um the cost isn't even that high. And then, so there were arguments that went around for, you know, we could hard fork. Well, that, that argument's gone now. And very few people make that argument anymore. It's only the people that have been like looking at the early Andreas, you know, um, videos and stuff like people outgrew that. And I argued against that from the very beginning. I was like, this just doesn't make any sense. Right. 
basically what you're arguing, and this is, this is people's knock on Ethereum right now, proof of stake. If somebody gets sufficient stake to control the coin, there's no way to get them out. You can't add more hash power, right? They own the history and the future. There's no way of getting them out. So what they say is, well, we could hard fork, right? I'm like, okay, here we are back to the old Bitcoin argument, hard fork your way out of a hash, you know, hash power attack. But Bitcoiners don't make that argument anymore because it's the same argument the Ethereum guys are making. It's ludicrous, right? Because what it means is we've just tossed out the entire invention of Bitcoin. Now we need some place to go to find what's the authoritative next block, mm-hmm. right? We're hard forking today. Here's the next block. Trust me on that, right? <laughs> and how do you know who's publishing this information? And then it starts happening regularly, which has happened in all coins. You start regularly, okay, so now you go, we call it proof of Twitter. That became the joke, right? It's proof of Twitter. I post, And this happened with like, I don't know if it was ABC or BSV or Cash, but, but it happened where they were like frequently posting block hashes to get people to update their nodes because they were failing, you know, under attack. And so it, it doesn't work. You can't, ha- you can't hard fork your way out of it. You got to buy your way out of it. And you don't know who's buying, who's selling, right? It's anonymous. That's, that's by design. You don't know who the good miners are. You don't know who the bad miners are. They don't know who good miners or bad miners. They're just people that want to do what they want to do, even the state, right? So anyway, I'm, 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 I'm soaking up a lot of your podcast time. No, it, this is brilliant. This is really, really cool stuff because as I said at the, at the top, you, I, I came to your work. I, I think I started, stopped and started reading crypto economics maybe three or four times um before we kind of you know you you said cool I'll, I'll come on your pod um so you know i i was incentivized to really put my head into it and um it i think one of the reservations was that you hear echoes and murmurings around the traps within the space uh and it, because it doesn't jive with the the current thing the narrative and let's be let's be frank the the bitcoin Space has its own narrative and everyone likes to push it, a majority narrative. Um, yours is, is very critical of that at, 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 a, at quite a number of points. And so uh, I guess it's kind of falling down the libertarian anarcho-capitalist rabbit hole too. Some of those concepts don't jive with your brain. And so right, you can right, either right. face yeah. up to them. How come, how come all these economists are telling me something different? But when I go to Rothbard, he's, he says that's all bullshit. Do you know what I mean? Well, face up to it and push through. Somebody doesn't understand something, right? Yeah, so and intellectual part of, part of being intellectually honest is to f- face those things and, and see if right. you can uh, pull them apart or take what works, leave what doesn't, yeah. And, and popularity is one of the poorest arguments. Um, you know, nobody, nobody believes that. Everybody thinks this. I'm like, okay, well, nobody believed, you know, what I just told you about uh, hard forking in Bitcoin um, when I first started. Like, that was the accepted solution. No question. You can go to Bitcoin Dev and read the history on it. Arguments with me, and um, now the accepted solution is what I'm telling you know what I what I published, and uh, and okay. So what if I just said, okay, geez, you know everybody believes this. I should just believe this too, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? Where would the, if everybody did that? Where would the where would the theory that actually holds up actually come out? And where would the effort be put to develop new things that actually would work well, at some point? We wouldn't have Bitcoin by definition. Right, right. Oh, yeah. You know, if, if it's all about popularity, let's just do a campaign to get good money. And, you know, and take it to a vote. <laughs> yeah, well, that's Libertarian Party stuff, right? Let's get let's get elected. Let's do the Ron Paul thing. Let's audit the Fed. And you know, <laughs> that's that's silly. That's you know, I don't even get me on those tangents. But um, you know, Mises, there's a lot of 
despite the fact that, you know, kind of Bitcoiners tend to associate Mises with the Austrian school, I don't know, maybe because he's Austrian, <laughs> which, is, which is ridiculous, right? Um, Menger was Austrian. Um, Mises was American. <laughs> but uh, but um, it, it, there's so much nonsense. Um, you know, this is, a, this is an unrelated tangent, but it, the, the people that just took over the U.S. Libertarian Party call themselves the Mises Caucus. And I've talked with a number of my, my son is very involved in Libertarian Party politics in the U.S. And I've talked to a number of these people and I'm like, it all comes back to these faulty economic theory. It comes back to Mises in a lot of ways, not understanding, you know, what I mentioned earlier, like gold and Cantillon, not understanding, like audit the Fed. Okay. You know, okay. The treasury prints the money. It's not the fucking Fed, right? But, you know, blame all the banks. Well, you know, it's, We've we've got a great um, personality in, uh, in 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 cypherpunk circles. Uh, oh geez, I'm gonna blank the name. Um, Selgin. Uh, George, George Selgin. Yeah, I, I was pretty critical of, of Selgin initially. I was I was a little bit too critical like years ago because because basically the idea of you know the free free banking. He's a free banker, and. Uh, I, I'm not, you know, like free banking doesn't work because there is a state. Right? That's why it doesn't work. So that's my criticism of free banking. I'm like, hey, you forgot there's there's still the state. And if we wanted to have free banking, we would have it. We just vote for it. But obviously we don't. OK, so it doesn't work. But he's a long term cypherpunk type. And uh, he got himself, you know, he's at the Cato and he's doing good work. And he's, he's trying to explain to people you know, they're, they're, they're just full of shit when they're talking about banking. And I came to this from my reading of Rothbard and my own understanding and my experiences and, and, and Bitcoin, you know, being a core developer for a long time. I have the same conclusions. And I look at intelligence, I'm like, you know, I've cut him a lot more slack recently. I'm like, he takes a lot of heat for trying to trying to straighten out this Mises kooks who, who just don't understand how money works and how banking works and how this is the state. It's not the banks. The Treasury prints the money, not the Fed. The Fed is part of the state to, to start with, right? And they basically nationalize banks. This is not a bank issue. It's not a question of bankers throughout history robbing people. This is a question of the state. And, and as long as people misidentify the threat, they will never solve the problem. And that's what's so frustrating about the Bitcoin community. People that are best situated to understand the threat and to do something about the problem for many people in the world continue to misunderstand the problem. And I continue to try to redirect them onto productive use of their capital. Um, one great, and this doesn't even all have to do with banking, it's just misunderstanding. But so when you come to it with a kind of a, an understanding of the principles, like the, the fundamentals, and you see an idea, and the idea, you don't understand it yet, but you understand that it conflicts with the principles, like you know, magic internet money, you question it and question it and question it to figure out what's wrong with it. And uh, one example was uh, Chia, you know, Chia coin. It's going to be energy friendly, basically Bitcoin, right? Going to mine on basically space available instead of energy. And we're going to, you know, we're going to achieve the same results, but make the world a greener place. And this was um, done by what's his name? Uh, um, no idea. Uh, famous, great guy. I mean, he, he, he was... He, but he raised like I don't know. I, I, he he he, had, he was successful with um, 
sorry, my, my, I'm getting too old. My memory fails all the time. It's but okay. um, anyway, you know, we had, I, I saw it. I had a, like a, got raised like $20 million in venture capital, hired a bunch of PhDs, wrote a paper, put the whole thing out all at once and said, here it is. You know, we're going to do this Chia thing. And it was all the rage. I don't, you know, I don't know when you came in, but it was like a big thing. Um, and I read it and it was right. I remember going to uh, Honey Badger. I don't know it was 2018 or something. And I was talking to some people about it. They were asking me and I'm like, oh, just, you know, I, I like, it's, it's silly, right? Like all this effort going into this and it's going to do nothing. Even if it's hugely successful, it does not change anything. Same amount of energy will be consumed manufacturing hard drives. Shipping them, installing them, destroying them, everything. It's not like we're just going to sit here and mine on existing free space. Why would anybody think that? I don't know. So <laughs> I had a debate with a guy who I can't remember his name um, uh, on, on Twitter uh, once or twice. And I'm like, right after I read it, I'm like, this is, you know, this is going to, and I, and I eventually wrote a topic. It's in my book called The Proof of Memory Facade or something like that. Basically, it just, it just, it just failed to understand a very basic economic principle that if there's if there's rising opportunity cost, like basically infinite money waiting to be taken, people are going to take it and they're going to take it by, you know, like with Bitcoin. Imagine, imagine if like the block reward, you know, is a million dollars a block, but the, co the cost of producing blocks a thousand dollars and people just keep producing these blocks and no competition comes in. <laughs> they just keep producing them in a thousand dollars. Why would nobody come in and take that? Well, the argument was, well, there's, you know, we we have all this free space. I'm like, I'm just going to make space. I'm going to make hard drives, you know, till they're coming out my ears. I'm going to pile up an iron mountain of hard drives, and and I'm going to I'm going to take some of that capital. And you know what? A couple of years later, I got contacted by one of their PhDs privately, and he said, we finally realized we were right and we're pivoting. <laughs> he said there was a, the whole thing fell apart internally, and you know whatever. And then they tried to go to proof of stake, and kind of that's pointless. So it's over. Right? So what a big win. All I had to do was read it one time. And, and so this is what I mean, like, like there's so much faulty economic theory. There's, this, I think there's great engineering in Bitcoin. There's, there's some stupid stuff, but it's just great engineering. But from an economic standpoint, um, which is the big, you know, when you, I, I've made software at Microsoft. I was an architect at Microsoft. I've made software that sold to Fortune 500 companies. Stuff. Like, I, I, I studied software engineering a bit. And, you know, the biggest engineering was stake you can make is getting the requirements wrong <laughs> right there's a there's a loop right you start the production process you go through this whole thing and you deliver the product and you find out you built the wrong product that's the most expensive now there's all these little tiny loops inside like i wrote a function and i tested it and i got an error Ooh, that was a very short loop and i fixed it now it's working and then i you know wrote a set of functions i wrote an application and so you have these like larger and larger loops that catch your errors as soon as you can mm -hmm. but getting a requirements error is is fatal it's catastrophic and especially if you don't you know you don't put it out there you just go to work for like 10 years and then you fail here it is <laughs> and so that's kind of way i see the bitcoin community it's like there's a lot of requirements errors being made um another one that i had had the same basic outcome was um god i'm so bad with names it's a guy that i met i knew i met him in hong kong he, he passed away a few years ago well-known bitcoiner um but he had he had proposed um risk-free rate of return using covenants and i'm like doesn't smell right. Thought about it for a while. Pointed out what you're, you know, the thing you're proposing has zero net present value. Nobody will do it. And eventually, they accepted that and it went away. Right, but I caught I caught it fairly early. There was a long debate on it on Bitcoin Dev. 
Um, but one of the guys that had worked on it told me that. I, I didn't know what had happened. It just kind of disappeared. And I, it was like a year ago, I think. I, and memory shot. I shouldn't name names anyway, but the, I, I ran into one of the guys that worked on it. Told me that's that's what happened. We we, we listened and we were like shit. And and then you know, unfortunately, the guy passed away that like next year. And I I felt kind of bad because this was like his thing he'd worked on right right up until that point. Um, I'm mindful of time, Eric, and I just um, you know, th- as I said. Th- this has been a really cool conversation because we've kind of veered off the general format of these overarching questions and we pull on various threads, but um, because of your unique circumstances, it's, it's, it's been really cool to sort of veer uh, off the beaten path as it were. I, I'm curious. I just want to wrap it up with uh, one question that I, I generally ask everybody, um, which is you know, how do you explain Bitcoin? To other people? Or how do I understand? How do, like, like you asked me if, if somebody didn't know anything about Bitcoin, how mm-hmm. would I explain it to them? Yep. I would say it's a stateless electronic money. And that's it. And then I'd wait till they ask questions. <laughs> what do you mean stateless? Like, I mean government. Okay. Not, not computer science, stateless. Uh, that's, it's a stateless electronic money. It's peer-to-peer electronic cash, right? That's the, that's the short, that's the elevator pitch. Um, you know, no government involvement. It's electronic and it's money. Well, uh, we already have electronic money. I said, so I, I move on from that. Well, no, we don't. We have electronic credit. A lot of discussions on the distinction between money and credit, which Bitcoiners do not understand. Right. That a lot of economists do not understand. A lot of officials do not understand. But from an economic standpoint, it's a very clear distinction. That's a great opportunity to have that conversation, right? What is Bitcoin? It's a peer-to-peer electric. It's a it's a it's a stateless electronic money and you know you can have a conversation about the electronic nature about what what is money you know what stateless mean those are conversations but that's a good elevator pitch i think satoshi got it right brilliant brilliant i was keen to ask what in a nutshell maybe you give me an elevator pitch i am curious to know what the what the core differences are between say the bitcoin and, and bitcoin core because that that's confused me a little bit in the last couple of weeks where, um, you know, I could download an instance of that or like, you know, when people get shipped no, um, these ready-made nodes like MyNode and Umbral and Start9 Embassy, um, it it comes with Core. It doesn't generally come with the Bitcoin. I could probably find someone to create me an instance of it, but um, I'm curious to know what the the main differences are. Like what's the... Yeah. Well, the, the, yeah, sure. Uh, the big, the Bitcoin is a is a developer toolkit, right? It's it's made for developers to build things without okay. when you say web APIs that kind of stuff, right? Which is counterproductive. Um, it does it does provide a command line tool, a Bitcoin Explorer, BX, and a node, a Bitcoin server, um, which basically they're just they're just command line. They they're they're there to exercise the full capability. If we didn't have that, we'd probably build the wrong thing. Important lesson when you build APIs, which I learned at Microsoft, is you need a customer for the API. Um, you should really have two. So um, that's what we have. We have these two customers, we call them, right? These tools that people sometimes use. But uh, as I pointed out earlier, there hasn't been a, a new release of Bitcoin uh, since version three over five years ago. And Jameson Lop does his review of nodes every year, still reviews it, still contacts me. I'm like, yep, nothing's changed. Still the same version. I'm, just, I'm still working on it. I had a long talk with him down in. Um, El Salvador about uh, 
about um, where we were and what we were doing. And so uh, differentiation, it's, it's a developer tool. Okay. The, the core is a, it's a monolithic application. It's like Netscape Navigator back in the early internet days where Microsoft and Apple eventually put those APIs into the operating system, right? So they, they provided tools for developers to build things that had internet capability as opposed to everybody installs Netscape and tries to bolt onto this application. So that's the difference between you know, a developer toolkit and an application. There really aren't robust tools for building Bitcoin stuff. There's web tools, which are totally centralized and pointless because they're not, you're, you're building on somebody else's Bitcoin. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you're, you're helping centralize. And then there's attempts to take those. There's, there's, um, there's a, um, what's it called? Again, there goes the memory. Um, a wrapper around core that, you know, you can pull some of those APIs down and do stuff locally. But um, that, that's one aspect of it. Another aspect of it is a, it's, a, it's a totally different design. And uh, it's a, Bitcoin's big. It has a lot of moving parts, a lot of different sub, subsystems. And they have to be built well. They have to be engineered well, tested well. Um, we have to have a community around it. These things take a lot of time. And um, so I, I think, you know, eventually what you're going to see is that, um, so, so the Bitcoin core, which used to be Bitcoin D, which was Satoshi's code, which I refer to as Satoshi's prototype, suffers from the fact that it was actually a prototype, right? He, he let it with him, rule number one of software engineering, never release your prototype because it, it becomes a dependency. People, people uh, you have to maintain it. And that's not really what you want to do. So it's kind of, um, from an, from an engineering standpoint, it, it, it's very slow, moves very slowly. They like that, right? It's good. It make, keeps it from breaking all that, but it's not going to evolve very, very quickly, very much. Um, and they talk, you know, there's a lot of talk about different things, refactoring, but, but make, you know, make it into these things. And that's basically what we did, right? <laughs> that's, that's what Amir did. He, he started from scratch and said, okay, we understand how Bitcoin works now. We understand, you know, what, some of the engineering trade-offs that were made early on were, and they're not necessarily the best. Um, for example, mem- mempool, I find it silly. Why would, why would you keep an unbounded amount of stuff in RAM <laughs> and have to keep throwing it out, even though it's valuable to miners, for example? Um, the, there, there's, just, there's just a lot of different design aspects. Um, and these things, you know, when you hear complaints about, like, different aspects of, of uh, protocol and no storage growth and things like that you always see these things like why are we having these discount this is not about bitcoin this is about the implementation right these are implementation issues <laughs> and so like a utxo store why do you have a utxo store you already store all the transactions they have the UT- they have all the all the outputs right why, why keep another set of unspent ones in memory which is going to grow indefinitely we know that so there's constraints it's there's other things like policy, which causes all kinds of problems because of unpredictability um, of your peers' transaction set. So you've got you've got you got these problems, and they don't really get addressed because these things are too fundamental to the implementation. So it's a redesign uh, from the ground up, architected with understanding with an understanding of these issues, and based on a lot of um, work that we've done. I spent about two years working on a version four, which I scrapped. Um, and then I, I started up about two years ago to do it again using, I mean, that I considered that prototype work, uh, using the, the learnings I got from that to, to go where I'm now. And where we are now is, you know, other guys doing it 
too. So the objective is to kind of get past this kind of what I call the Netscape Navigator phase and get into more Bitcoin-enabled applications um, that aren't all dependent on this this application. You know, you running and installing this application sits there and runs. Um, I look at Bitcoin as Bitcoin nodes are like routers. They're essential to your network, uh, your money network, right? Routers have to exist locally. They can't be outsourced. And they carry nothing but public information. Um, they have issues of trust and verification, which are important. And Bitcoin handles them differently than routers handle them. But essentially, it's the same idea. Everybody needs a router. Everybody needs a Bitcoin node. And um, it's just too fundamental to be left to uh, what I find is a very kind of difficult to maintain um, and build on application. So, and there need, you know, I think from a philosophical standpoint, this is a large part of where Amir came from. It's not really just engineering. It's actually predominantly uh, community. You cannot have just one implementation and have the type of community that we expect to have where there's actually other voices. I know that the court guys will tell you just the opposite, right? Like, oh, it's, you know, it's all, we all, <laughs> no, I, I often am the only one speaking out against something that, that, that everybody in that community wants to do. That's just, either that means I'm just fucking idiot or you know, has been working on this stuff longer than most of them. Or um, there are other voices out there that agree that won't say anything because they'll get shut out. And that's, that's, I know that's the case. <laughs> so we, we create another community of people who have other voices and expertise and can tell them to fuck off if they don't, you know, I'll, I'm just going to put it in my code. You can do whatever you want in your code. Right. Um, and so that, that, that is, I think, even more important than the fact that we're, you know, engineering something that, that might provide some advantages. Mm -hmm. We have another community that's independent. Optionality at all times. Yeah. yeah. I mean, this started when, when the Bitcoin foundation was driving Bitcoin core before it was Bitcoin, it was Bitcoin D right. The Bitcoin Foundation was a corporate consortium, which was paying the salaries of the people that were doing all the commits <laughs> or who had control over the commits and were doing most of the work. And Gavin, Mike Kern. Mm -hmm. um, and Amir got shut out of that group. He got shut out of this. He was on the security mailing list. He was part of the kind of team. He developed the BIP system. He did a lot of important things for Bitcoin. And they, he was too much of a loose cannon, I think. And they just cut him. They just cut him out of security loop. So he's like, you know, he didn't like how... Decisions were being made behind closed doors. So he created the BIP system to open it up. And um, and that legacy is the Bitcoin, right? The, the legacy of open standards around Bitcoin is is comes from Amir, comes from the Bitcoin as a consequence of the Bitcoin Foundation's um, stuff. And, and many of the things that he complained about have since been yanked out of or are in the process of being yanked out of Bitcoin Core mm. or, or recognized problems now. For example, BIP 37, um, which was the bloom filters, right? Insecure problems with, with state management, um, you know, not private, um, just bad engineering all around, and it's going away. And people, you know, <laughs> like, yeah, we could have listened to us, or we could have had a more of an open discussion about it. So that's what I mean. Uh, there's there's an advantage to having other voices um, out there. No, absolutely. This has been a, certainly an other voice on this particular podcast. I mean, you could easily paint it as a cheerleading podcast. It's not really. It's just more discussing with individuals their own experiences of discovering Bitcoin, which I think um, you brought I, I an entirely new set. I wouldn't describe that as cheerleading. I, I, no, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say it. Like, 
cheerleading is, you know, you're, you're giving people an opportunity to describe their, to tell their story. Right. And that's mm. great. And, you know, I, I look at cheerleading as, is basically denial of, 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 um, things so that, you know, you can just promote a, you know, everything's sunny all the time, right? They can't do this. They can't do that. Or, you know, it's the numbers always going up and, and, you know, you can be positive about Bitcoin without being in denial and being a cheerleader. You can be, you can be positive and, um, and I, I'm positive on Bitcoin. People think, you know, some people come to the conclusion I'm negative on Bitcoin. Why the hell am I spent the last nine years of my life working on it? Right. It doesn't make any sense. So I, I am positive on Bitcoin, but, but I'm not, you know, it's not my objective to make a bunch of lazy people rich. That's, that's not what fucking Bitcoin is for, right? Bitcoin is to save lives of people who are, you know, who are abused around the world. And that may become us at some point, but it's not us now. Right. That, that's another thing is, you know, okay, yeah, we, we're paying the inflation tax. Okay, we're going to pay tax one way or another anyway. But, um, you know, if you take away their inflation tax, they're going to, going to tax you directly. Um, so deal with your political problems. But, um, you know, there are people that, that are literally surviving because of Bitcoin today. Um, Absolutely. And, and I, you know, again, I travel a lot. I've been in 90 countries. I've met people, you know, around the world that have great stories to tell. Um, you know, Zimbabwe, Venezuelans, you know. I haven't been to North Korea yet, but. I don't know how well it's working there. Um, anyway, sorry. No, Randy. I have no idea how it's um, how it's operating in North Korea, how it's going, if it is going at all. I, I it is. <laughs> no network. Bitcoin's not money without a network, you know. That hundred percent. Awesome conversation, Eric. I um, as I said, I I, I think this is one of the more nerve wracking ones before we you know we kick things off. And I think it was just because of, of some of those contrarian views. Um, but the more I've watched some of your talks and dove into crypto economics and stuff, there's a lot of, there's a lot of value to be extracted there and a lot of um, food for thought. So I appreciate you spending scarce time and finite energy discussing your discovery of Bitcoin. And uh, yeah, thank you, man. Yeah, I appreciate you having me on. Thank you.